Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with Ben O'Weiner, author of the new book, The Chinese Revolution on the Tibetan Frontier. Ben O'Weiner is assistant professor in the Department of History at Carnegie Mellon University and is co-editor of the book, Conflicting Memories. We spoke to Benno about how the public has been asking the wrong question about the Tibet question, why it is essential that historians of China study how China tried to integrate its borderland regions into the modern Chinese nation, and where the People's Republic of China looks to be heading today in regards to ethnic minority issues. Hello, Benno. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, we're glad to have you on, and we look forward to discussing in the next few minutes your new book, The Chinese Revolution on the Tibetan Frontier. Tell us about how this book came about. I mean, it's a, it's a long time coming. In retrospect, the inspiration came from trips to China that I did in the early 90s when I was, was quite young, uh, where I spent a lot of time traveling by train, bus, and foot, really, around Western, Western China. Um, and it's really then that I became cognizant, aware that there were a lot of people in China, mostly on its fringes, that weren't what I thought of as being ethnic Chinese. Uh, you know, there were Tibetans, of course, but also various Muslim people and, and Mongols and Dai and Nashi and Dong and Zhuang and many others. And I kind of remember wondering, who are these people? You know, how do they get here? What makes them Chinese? You know, they weren't terribly sophisticated questions, but there's, in, in, a, in a sense, the same ones that continue to drive my sort of research interests and, and agenda to this day. And then when I arrived in grad school, I discovered uh, a rel relatively new turn in the literature that was de-essentializing China's past. It's essentially saying instead of 5,000 years of continuous history as the story always went, uh, these historians were showing that modern Chinese, the modern Chinese state was really formed in the last couple centuries when the leaders of, of the Manchu people conquered China and most of Inner Asia and formed this, this Qing empire. Um, and the massive boundaries of the Qing, along with its de demographic diversity, is what in the course of the 20th century actually becomes China. It doesn't go back throughout time. It's from this very specific moment of, of conquest and, and, and empire building. Now, what these scholars didn't really do so much, however, is, is show how that last part happened, uh, how it became China, how the Qing became China. So my book hopefully tells part of that story. How did you know, the Qing become the People's Republic? What strategies and narratives did the Communist Party employ in their nation-building efforts? On these, on these borderlands, among these non-Chinese people? And then how do these people re respond? And, and how, what were the successes of, of the state's efforts? And, and judging from resistance we see in Tibet and Xinjiang and elsewhere, uh, what, why have these efforts often fallen short of, of their goals? And these, these are the questions and, and, and the um, sort of uh, you know, answers I wanted to, to, to start offering so we can understand these processes uh, a little better. Great, great. So now one of the things that you've said about your book that uh, you're showing that uh, we have been asking the wrong question about the Tibet question. Can you mm -hmm. go a little bit more into that? Yeah, that's just to say that it's not that we've been asking the wrong question as far as sort of um, the general public. The general public wants to know if Tibet should or should not be part of, of, of China. And of course, exiled Tibetans and Tibetans in, in, in China also want to know the answer to that question sometimes or, or, or want to raise that question. All I'm saying is that that's not really a historical question. Uh, his, you know, that, 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 a historical question instead asks how Tibet became part of China. Why have Chinese state makers of many different political stripes over the course of the last 100, 150 years insisted that Tibet must be part of China? 
Um, what were the strategies they employed to make that so? How did people in Tibet and elsewhere respond to this? Um, and again, you know, why is this process not been completely successful? Why do you still see so much resistance among Tibetans? So these are, these are historical or scholarly questions, I think, that are much more interesting um, and important than this question of uh, sort of an essentialized question of should it or should it not be part of, of China? Certainly anybody can ask that question and come up with their own, their own personal moral answers to that question. Interesting, interesting. So how do you hope your book will make an impact on your field? Well, for one, I hope that it um, convinces people in my field that it's important to look at these so-called peripheral reg reg uh, regions of China. Um, in essence, I think our, our, our field does not do a great job of that. Um, you can go to workshops and read entire edited volumes on modern Chinese history that never refer to a non-Chinese person, never talk about these areas on China's uh, you know, peripheries, which aren't peripheries, I'm gonna, I'm gonna argue. In fact, these areas make up roughly 60% of the land mass of the People's Republic of China and account for over 100 million people. So imagine if you were in a, in a workshop in the United States and there was a, a, a workshop in the 1960s or on the post-war period and you didn't talk about any minority peoples or borderland areas, that wouldn't be acceptable, hopefully, today. But somehow it still is in, in the China field. And I hope, and not, not that I'm gonna change that with one book, but I hope I'm gonna make, add to the conversation and convince people that these are important questions to ask. Because modern China can't be understood without examining its ethnocultural borderlands. I'm convinced of that and, and the people that live in them. Any more again than the U.S. history can be understood without taking into account its so-called minorities, right, or, or borderlands. So exploring the processes by which Chinese political elites have sought to incorporate frontier regions into the Chinese state, in a sense, transforming non-Chinese people who had been subjects of the Qing Empire into minorities within a Han-dominated nation. Now, this should be a peripheral concern to, to scholars of modern China. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I think this really is one of the central questions of modern Chinese history and interation history. And, you know, I hope we, we begin to wake up to that, that fact uh, more and more. And I, I think we are. That's great. That's great. I, I, this is fantastic that you're bringing uh, these issues of the borderlands and these ethnic minorities that, that can't be ignored in, in mm -hmm. our modern history. Um, within the field, what arguments within your book do you think will be seen as controversial or may shake things up a little bit? Yeah, thanks. Um, I mean, I think many observers have, have thought that the Communist Party's actions in, in Tibet and other minority regions really amount to little more than sometimes called internal colonialism or, or, or something of, of, of the sort. But if you, if you start from the present or if you start from the Cultural Revolution or, or whatever and look backward, it's easy enough to come to those conclusions. But one of my central really arguments is that the party's initial goal, at least in these ethnocultural frontier regions, wasn't just to control or dominate them, as many have claims, but, but to transform them, to transform these people uh, into members of a new unified socialist political community. In other words, it wasn't just to build a state, it was to create a nation. And what I found out is that at least in the early days of the, of the People's Republic, the party leaders uh, realized that to build this nation, you can't rely on force or co coercion alone. You have to create narratives and policies that will convince these diverse peoples that they have a stake in the nation, uh, that they want to be part of it. Uh, so it initially implemented relatively moderate policies uh, based on promises of autonomy, equality, and economic prosperity. Um, and, and party leaders predicted this would cause ethnic minority people to, uh, again, gradually, voluntarily, and organically, those are, those are quotes, join this new, new nation state. For reasons I described in the book, this didn't happen. Um, um, and, and instead, the party resorted to, 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 to violence. And I would argue that um, um, 50 years later, the memory of this violence uh, that was committed in these communities and against these communities 
continues to hamper the CCP's efforts to integrate ethnocultural borderlands uh, into the nation state, areas that once had been part of the Qing Empire, uh, in, uh, to make these people into minorities of uh, a Chinese-dominated uh, Chinese nation. Okay, that makes sense. So you're, you're so tying in the uh, this deep dive, uh, this historical analysis that you've done. Where do you see things going? Uh, you know, where where are we, where are we now? And where do you, let's say you had a crystal ball and you could look yeah. twenty years in the future. Where do you, where's the trajectory? What what are you looking at? Well, unfortunately, I don't think that the party, as it currently is constituted, uh, it, it remembers these lessons, is paying attention to these lessons from the 1950s, um, in which relatively moderate policies hopefully had a, 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 a pluralism, for instance, and respect for local cultures, where they hope that these would be ways to, to draw people in. Instead, what we see, particularly in the last 10 years, is a much more hardline approach to ethnic minority issues, this can most clearly be seen in Xinjiang, where you have this unprecedented uh, regime of uh, securitization and mass imprisonment. Um, uh, but you can also see it in Tibet and other areas as well. It, it seems to me that policies of pluralism are on the way out, and assimilationist policies and authoritarian policies are today's game in China. And you know that, that may successfully um, eliminate resistance in these border regions. It may aid state building. But like I said before, it's not going to result, I don't think, in, in nation building. It's not going to convince these people in Tibet, Xinjiang, and elsewhere that they wanted to be part of China. And I would foresee that that would just uh, eventually result in more resistance rather than a sort of a melding or a bringing of, of people together. That makes sense. That makes sense. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing we, we, this, this, this short overview of your book. Anyone that's interested in China, in Tibet, wants to um, understand what's going on now, you have to go back to the 1950s. You have to go back to this time period that Benno so expertly portrays and, and the deep research that Benno has done to really explore this history. So thank you so much. Congratulations on this new book. And we're excited to be publishing it. And it was great talking with you. My pleasure. Thanks so much. That was Benno Weiner, author of the new book, The Chinese Revolution on the Tibetan Frontier. As a loyal listener to the podcast, we'd like to offer you a special 30% discount on this new book. To receive your discount, please go to cornellpress.cornell.edu and use the promo code 09POD. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSAnnounce and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. 